Welcome to Brain and Events. We're delighted to be joined by Joe Schmidt, who runs the fantastic YouTube channel, The Majesty of Reason. We think it's important to give our competition a good chance, and we're going to give them a good grilling on our show. Joe, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So suppose you are strolling in the woods, and in addition to the sticks and stones and other accustomed litter on the forest floor, you one day come upon some strange object. It's you haven't really seen anything like it before, but it's somewhat similar to some things you've seen before. And in particular, it's a glowing orb. So it's just this orb. It's about five or six feet tall around your own size. Uh, and it's just in the middle of the force and it's perfectly translucent. It's really smooth. You're touching it. And this is not at all what you would expect to find in the forest. And suppose moreover that you're hiking along with one of your friends and you're like, Hey, look at this thing. This is crazy. I just found this glowing orb that should why is the reason why is this glowing orb in the middle of the forest i don't understand and your friend is like oh well maybe there's some reason maybe not let's just continue on our path and you're like well no let's investigate this further why is there an orb here and eventually you and your friend talk back and forth about this and you're just demanding some sort of reason some sort of explanation for why this orb is in the forest you're like there has to be some sort of reason here it, it cannot have just popped into existence on pause. It cannot just exist here from eternity past. There has to be some kind of reason why the orb exists. And your friend, just annoyed by your persistent questioning at some point, just says, no, there's no reason whatsoever why it's here. Let's just move on. Let's go on our, let's go on our way. Now, I think you would probably say that your friend, I don't know, you, you probably think that you're right. And your friend is wrong. Maybe I've freaked this by saying that you're the one who is the one who's saying there has to be an explanation, but intuitively it seems like is wrong here. Surely there has to be an explanation for why you've come across this orb. And of course, you might know where I'm going with this. Similarly, one of the classical arguments for God's existence is, hey, we look around, we find ourselves in this wonderful universe. If an orb in the middle of a forest cries out for some kind of explanation for why it exists, well, then it would seem as though the universe cries out for some explanation as to why it exists. And um, so the thought goes, that explanation is something transcending the universe, something very much like God, we might say. So Great. So, I mean, this is, this is often termed the design argument uh, for God's existence, and it's very popular amongst those who believe in God's existence. So the way that atheists respond to um, the design argument is by saying something like, there's a series of laws that we can cite or a series of scientific mechanisms, which are perfectly accessible to science, which explain why the orb was there. Now, you've used a particular example, which is this orb, which seems very unnatural. And so it seems quite odd to, to cite a series of laws that, that explain through random happen chance why this orb happened to be there in your path. But scientists claim that when it comes to the universe, they can provide that set of laws. I, I think what's interesting about your case is that it's more difficult to do for this orb. And so by setting up the example in that way, it, it kind of leans against the atheist's explanation. Yeah, absolutely. And we could really tease apart almost two different arguments here. So one of them could be a kind of design route where you're saying like, well, this orb is incredibly surprising. Uh, why on earth would this sort of thing exist? It has various features that are indicative of something like intentional design. And you might say, we see such features in the universe itself. It's surprising why the universe exists. And moreover, it has various features that you might think are indicative of some kind of further intelligent design. Maybe it's extremely beautiful, maybe it has some kind of uh, intelligibility, maybe it has some kind of order and so on. So that's a kind of design route that, that you were kind of suggesting. But another route you might go uh, with respect to this is by saying, well, hey, just the very fact that there is 
something here in the forest that could have failed to be in the forest. It's not like some sort of necessary fact about reality that this orb is in the forest. Just the very fact that there is this thing here that exists and that could have failed to be here calls out for some reason, some outside explanation cause as to why it's here. And that would be a more, perhaps a kind of contingency style argument. And you might then say, well, the very fact that let's say the universe or maybe the collection of contingent beings exist could have failed to exist because they're contingent calls out for some kind of outside reason or explanation of cause as to why it exists. And that because it's an outside reason or explanation for why there are any contingent things, it cannot itself be contingent. And so it would have to be a necessary transcendent being or cause that explains it. So you could go those diff two different routes, the, the design route and the, the contingency argument route. Yeah, so we had Graham up here on the show right when we started, and he says one way to respond to this uncaused cause argument you know, with the idea of to say, well, God is a necessary being. That's why God is different from the universe. I don't need to give an explanation for how God came into existence. He says, well, I'll play to a draw, which is I'll just say that the universe is necessary. It seems quite difficult to sort of decide how do we determine what's necessary, what's contingent. Is there some reason why we ought to think that... Uh, God would be necessary in a way that the universe is not. Yeah. So full cards on the table for the audience who might not be familiar with me or might not know. I'm actually an agnostic, so I am not a theist. I do not think that these arguments successfully demonstrate God's existence, but I think that lots of arguments are interesting in this regard. So I'll just kind of work with this. So one thing that some theists try to say in response to this kind of obvi point, well, they could go two different ways. They might try to give some kind of symmetry breaker in terms of why think that the universe is contingent as opposed to necessary. Uh, and so like that, that doesn't itself apply to God. So it's, it kind of breaks the symmetry between those cases. Maybe, maybe you might say, well, hey, the universe is limited in various ways. Maybe they want to say that the universe began to exist. Maybe they want to say the universe shares really relevantly similar features to other things that we know are contingent, like let's say this water bottle, right? This water bottle didn't have to exist. Some, someone arguably uh, produced it and could have failed to produce it. So. They might say that there are various relevant similarities between uh, contingent things that we know are contingent and the universe, and they might try to motivate that and then say that that doesn't apply to God. But God isn't limited in these various respects. He doesn't have spatial boundaries. God didn't begin to exist and so on. So all these various marks of, let's say, contingency are present for the universe, but not for God. That's what they might say. A second thing they that they might say is grant, Oppie, that, okay, fine, I might not be able to come up with symmetry breaker, but let's compare our theories, see which one has better explanatory power with respect to data, see which one is simpler, and go from there. Oppie, of course, thinks that naturalism wins out on that, but someone like Josh Rasmussen, who is a philosopher with whom Oppie has sparred quite a lot, would come to an opposite conclusion. So, but anyway, that is a good pushback. And I actually, myself, um, I, so we could break down contingency arguments in two stages. The first stage gets to some kind of necessary foundation of reality, something necessary that explains why there are contingent things. Stage two tries to identify that thing, God. I actually tend to be sympathetic to at least some stage one cases there. But stage two, I find to be incredibly weak. <laughs> Honestly, I find it to be exceedingly weak. The various inferences to God from necessary being, I find to be implausible. I think that a necessary foundation of reality could be something like maybe a quantum field, or there's been really good work from Alyssa Ney and Jill North and others on the universal wave function, wave function monism. Maybe there's this perfectly naturalistic, non-spatiotemporal, necessarily existent foundation of reality. Um, and maybe it's a collection of fundamental particles and so on. So anyway, that's just so tools for the audience to think critically about this. So for anyone who's watching or listening, who's like me and hasn't engaged in these arguments in a while it might be useful just to define some terms. So um, what we mean by contingent, I assume is something like 
it needn't have been there. So it is there, but it needn't have been there versus necessary, it had to be there. And then when we talk about theism, atheism, and agnosticism, theism, we talk about the belief in a certain kind of God. It's the Judeo-Christian God, and there's a list of claims which defines those that God. And we will discuss that in a bit, I'm sure. An atheist is someone who thinks there isn't sufficient evidence for that kind of God. And an agnostic thinks that there couldn't be evidence, or we don't know what that evidence is, or that we could never know, depending on your grade of atheism or your grade of agnosticism rather. So does that, is, are those definitions what you have in mind when you use those terms? Yeah. So unfortunately there are different ways people go about defining these sorts of terms. Um, as I use them, I usually just say atheist is someone who thinks that uh, God exists and God, we could say, like you mentioned, it's like a perfect being, omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, maybe the necessarily existent creator of everything else. And then as I use it, an atheist or we could say positive atheist, or we could just say atheist. This is just how I use the terms. An atheist is someone who thinks that, no, there is no such thing. Nothing answers to that sort of description of reality. And then the agnostic comes in a bunch of different varieties. Some say we can't know whether there is such a thing. Some say that uh, the evidence is roughly counterbalanced. Some say there is no evidence either way. Some say, yeah, it, it just varies. So for me, I say that I think the evidence is roughly counterbalanced. I think there are evidential chips that fall on both sides. Uh, and to my light, by my lights, it's roughly evidentially counterbalanced. So, so yeah, good, good thing to get clarity on there. And you did, uh, that, that's how philosophers typically in this kind of context define contingent necessary. So if we return back to this uncaused cause or cosmological argument, it seems that one of the problems that you've alluded to is maybe there was this uncaused cause, but is that thing God? And if we want to give God certain kinds of attributes, as you say, like being all good, um, or all-powerful, uh, or eternal, it's not clear that that's, you could have a, a creator who creates the universe and then is extinguished in the creation act. Or is it a deist type of God who creates it and then goes and does other stuff and pays no further attention to its creation. So it doesn't seem to require the morality uh, or the or the all-powerfulness. We could also talk about, Jason alluded to this sort of notion of a Judeo-Christian God. People kind of imagine a guy in the sky who has a personal relationship with its creations. Could you give us some ideas about other conceptions of God that we could have? Yeah. So <clears throat> there are definitely sort of two issues there. The one about like, hey, why think this is God as opposed to maybe some sort of, or a theistic God as opposed to some sort of deistic God, or maybe a God who, you know, sees to exist after it's belching out of creation or something along those lines. And the way that theists might push back on that is to say, uh, well, depending on our argument, we might get to something that's necessarily existent. And they might argue that if it's necessarily existent, then it cannot fail to exist. And if it cannot fail to exist, well, then there cannot be a state of affairs in which it fails to exist. And if there cannot be a state of affairs in which it fails to exist, then it cannot be the case that this thing ceases to exist. Because if it ceases to exist, then there would be some state of morality in which it is absent, in which it fails to exist. That's something they might say. Another thing they might say is like, oh, well, we don't even need to focus on a kind of temporal origination of reality. We could also argue that God is needed to sustain contingent beings in existence moment after moment. Why do things persist in existence? So that could kind of do away with these sorts of, um, not necessarily do away with, but that could kind of push back against these deistic models or models on which God kind of creates and then ceases to exist. So those are some ways that theists might push back. I in turn would push back by saying, I don't think that things need sustaining causes to keep them in existence. I think that uh, existential inertia, what we could say things persist in existence without requiring some sustenance. They cease to exist only when they're positively disrupted by something that comes along and destroys them. I think that seems uh, quite plausible. Um, 
But, but yeah, anyway, that's a dip, some different ways of pushing back on that. But as for your second question there, yeah, there are a bunch of different ways to conceive of God or what we might call ultimate reality. So under a kind of theistic camp, even theists themselves disagree. And so I'll just broadly outline two different camps. One of them has this really transcendent, what I can, what we might call high octane classical theism, where they say, God is this pure act of being. God is being itself. God is utterly timeless. He cannot change in any way whatsoever. God is absolutely simple. So there aren't any parts that go to make him up. He's numerically identical to all of his attributes. So if you think that omniscience and omnipotence and moral perfection are distinct, think again. These things are just numerically identical to God. This kind of harkens back to Plato, right? Plato had this form of the good, which is the source of the goodness and being of everything else. What, what classical theists tend to do is identify God with that form of the good. So God just is the good. God is uh, his own omnipotence. He is his omniscience and so on. It sounds kind of radical, but well, that's partly because it is. But also it, it has a long history. That's why it's called classical theism. But you could have non-classical models of the theistic God as well. So a lot of people think that, no, these attributes are distinct from one another. No, God is not timeless. He exists within time. That's how he's able to constantly keep track of what time it is, for instance, because he has to be omniscient. So he has to continually update, change his knowledge based on what time it is, for instance. He also has to change in order to sustain things that come into being and pass away and so on. So they might say God is in time. They might say God can change in various ways. Maybe when the Holocaust happens, God is not in a state of pure happiness. God rather has empathy with, with his creation. He has sadness over the atrocities that are occurring and so on. So that's a kind of non-classical model of God, which is not as high octane and transcendent as the classical theist thing. But then of course you have perhaps other models of ultimate reality, right? You could have theism, as you mentioned. You could have maybe a God which is just morally indifferent to creation. Maybe you could have, you could have lots of different things. So anyway, I, I hope that's enough to <laughs> give the audience a lay of the land here. So laying my cards on the table, the kind of religion which I ascribe to is pantheism. So I hold the view that God is identical with the universe and the universe is identical with God. And one of the arguments for pantheism actually stems from one of the theistic conceptions of God that you mentioned earlier, which is that God is required to sustain the universe at all times. And some pantheists like Spinoza have argued that you can boil that down to, well, God just is the universe and the universe is God. But the classical pantheists, they also get rid of the, one of the fundamental claims made by theists, which is that God created the universe. So on the traditional pantheist view, God didn't create the universe. God just is the universe and the universe is God. I'd be curious to know if you have any thoughts on this kind of pantheism. Oh boy, I have lots of thoughts. Where do we go from here? Oh boy. Maybe this is actually a really good transition into talking about the Kalan cosmological argument because, right, if the Kalan cosmological argument succeeds, that is arguably, or not arguably, that is a, if it succeeds again, if, that's the gift. But if it succeeds, it's an argument against pantheism, right? The Kalan cosmological argument roughly runs as follows. Whatever begins to exist as a cause, that's the first premise. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And so in conclusion, the universe has a cause or some kind of thing that created it. Now in that case, right, it doesn't really make much sense to say that God is the universe. I mean, I guess you could say that, but then there would be something that created God. I mean, surely we would want to say that God is the thing that brought the universe into existence. And so the Kalan cosmological argument is actually something that thinkers have used against this kind of pantheistic model of God. So it might be interesting to dwell on this argument. So premise one, let's focus on that. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Why should we think this? Well, here are two reasons. One reason is that some people think it's just intuitively obvious. It just seems obvious that when something pops into existence or springs into being from nothing as it were, 
surely it requires something that brought that about, that brought that brought the thing into existence, right? It's not as though there could be some kind of like raging tiger that snaps into being in this room next to me unpaused. No, there would need to be something that produced the tiger. And similarly with Beethoven or bicycles or root beer or really anything, just intuitively, something cannot come from nothing. Something cannot have, something cannot come into existence without being brought into existence by something else. So that's one reason it's just to kind of appeal to intuition. Someone might just say it's kind of self-evident. So how one might think that, let's say the law of non-contradiction is self-evident. So that's one reason for the causal principle. A second reason for the causal principle is just look around us, right? We see exceptionally confirmed in our experience that whenever something begins to exist, there's something that produces it. So for instance, I brought up my little uh, water bottle earlier. My water bottle here began to exist. Maybe, I don't know how old this is. It's probably, let's say two years old. Uh, well, a factory produced it or some, someone produced it. Right. Similarly with me, I began to exist maybe somewhere around conception, maybe somewhere afterwards, but there were various causes that went into that. My parents, various environmental conditions and so on. But this is exceptionally empirically confirmed, this premise. So the thought goes. So our universal experience attests to its truth and it seems really intuitively obvious. So that's reasons favoring premise one. I guess before getting into reasons for premise two, I'll just turn it over to you guys. Uh, because again, this is sort of responding to that pantheism point. I know it's a slight shift, but you can still see how it's relevant. So, so it's interesting because it, it, if you see this argument as an objection to pantheism, you're relying on a very particular conception of causality. So you're relying on a conception of causality where something cannot cause itself. So you need to have two distinct entities, A and B, where A and B are not numerically identical, and only then can A cause B or B cause A. But what's interesting is you might think about causality when it comes to things like the universe and God differently. You might think of the kind of causality that happens there as the kind of causality that happens at the quantum level. So when we look at quantum causation, it's very different. You get spooky action at a distance when two particles are linked or intertwined. And that kind of causation, it seems to happen simultaneously. It doesn't happen one after the other. Also, it's not entirely clear whether those objects are distinct, whether those particles are distinct in some important way. They seem to be entwined in a way which makes them part of the same one. And maybe it's possible to think of the universe and God in that way. They're entwined. These particles are entwined. These two entities are entwined, God and the universe, in such a way that they're not really two entities. They're one entity. And it's not really creation. It's not A causing B. It's more like they're entwined. So when one changes in a certain way, another one changes in a certain way. So maybe the way to think about causality is not, when we talk about the universe and God, is not the same way we think about macroscopic objects like beer cans and tables and chairs. Perhaps we need to think about it in different ways. One thing that you, someone might push back on in response to what you said there is to say, well, let's just forget about the word cause because that comes with a lot of baggage. Let's just modify our premise. Let's modify that first premise. Instead of saying whatever begins to exist has cause, Let's just say whatever begins to exist has some sort of prior condition, which is explanatorily relevant to the, to the coming to be of the thing in question. And again, that seems intuitively plausible. It seems to be the case that when something begins, when something springs, when something comes about, when something pops or appears into being, it seems as though there'd be, be some sort of prior condition, maybe not necessarily temporally prior, perhaps it's just ontologically prior or metaphysically prior or prior in the order of explanation. But there has to be some sort of condition some prior condition, which is explanatorily relevant to it, which at least partly explains why the thing comes to be. That seems intuitive. So pe people might say, we still preserve that kind of justification. We get rid of all this baggage about cause. And so arguably this, this 
is perfectly compatible with quantum mechanics. After all, these various quantum systems are governed by various laws and they have states which evolve over time and the, the prior states are explanatorily relevant to the posterior states in conjunction with the laws. So it's compatible with quantum mechanics. And thirdly, uh, it does seem to be exceptionally empirically confirmed in our everyday experience and so on. So, so yeah, that's one way that someone could, I guess, push back on that and say, hey, we can at least modify premise one and still be able to get to some sort of explanatorily prior condition with respect to the universe's beginning. And that we might say is God. And that's later on in the argument. Um, I, maybe we can move on to premise two now, if that's okay with you guys. So premise two is the universe began to exist. So why should we think this? Well, you could go kind of a posteriori support. So that's kind of dependent on our experience of the world. In that case, you'd be looking at maybe something like Big Bang cosmology, or maybe the border goods for Lincoln theorem, or other sorts of physical results that you might think support a beginning of the universe. So that's one route. Another route you could go an a priori route. So that's just from the armchair. I'm actually in an armchair right now, so this is befitting. But yeah, so some of the a priori arguments just look at the absurdity or the alleged absurdity or perhaps even contradictions that would obtain if the past were infinite. That would allow us to conclude that the past cannot be infinite, in which case the past is finite, in which case the universe has a beginning. So the thought goes. And I'll just give, I guess, one illustrative example of the alleged absurdities that obtain from an infinite past, or at least from actual infinites. So imagine that we have this hotel, okay? And this is a, this is a thought experiment from the famous mathematician, David Hilbert. And yeah, so it's called Hilbert's hotel. And what we are to imagine is that there's this infinitely capacious hotel. So imagine space is infinite. There are infinitely many rooms labeled with the natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. Some people count zero as the natural number, but there's some controversy over that. So you can set that aside and who would want to be in room zero anyway. So just set that aside. So we're starting with one and it goes all the way up through the natural numbers. So we've got this grand hotel. And now suppose that we admit infinitely many guests, one for each race. We have a one-to-one -one correspondence between the guests and the race. Now suppose a guest shows up to the hotel and he's asking, I really want a room. Come on, concierge, can't you fit me in? And the concierge is like, he's checking the books. He's like, sorry, we don't, <laughs> we don't have a room open. All of them are, are closed. And then the, the other concierge comes along and is like, wait, what we could do is we could take the room guest in room one, move that guest to room two, and then take the guest in room two, move that guest to room three, take the guest in room three, move to four, four to five, and so on, ad infinitum, and bada bing, bada boom, we've accommodated a new guest. Wow, we originally had a full hotel, but somehow we've now managed to accommodate a new guest. That seems just, that seems absurd, doesn't it? Or so the thought goes. Similarly, supposing only many guests show up and they all want a hotel. The original concierge is like, well, I don't, Room, but now that this other concierge is like, <laughs> show me that we can accommodate one, maybe we actually can accommodate infinitely many. And of course, this other smart concierge comes along and is saying, Yep, we actually can move now the room, each person in each room to the room that's twice that number. So basically, you're just moving everyone to all the even rooms. So number one goes to two, number two goes to four, number three goes to six, number four goes to eight, and so on ad infinitum. What this does is this renders all the odd numbered rooms vacant and all the even numbered rooms full. And so you can accommodate infinitely many guests. And wait, it gets even more absurd. So the thought goes. Now imagine that the, 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 the manager of the hotel is like, okay, there are way too many parties going on. There, there, we just, just way too many people. We, we cannot handle this. So he decides to take out infinitely many people. And so on the first occasion when he does this, 
what he does is he takes out all the guests in rooms, in the even number of rooms. So we're taking out all those guys and telling them, sorry, get up, go. They all leave. So we've just done a kind of subtraction. We had infinitely many guests originally. We've now just took away infinitely many, but how many do we have already? Still infinitely many, right? Because they're all the guests in the odd number groups and there are infinitely many odd numbers. But now suppose that the manager is like, instead of taking out all of those odd numbered people, let's just take out all the people greater than four. So all the people in the rooms four or five and above, let's say. Now we've done another subtraction of infinity from infinity as it were. And we're left with four guests in the entire hotel. So it seems as though infinity minus infinity is infinity and infinity minus infinity is four. And that just seems, doesn't it? So the thought goes. And what this shows us is that infinity is, seems to be absurd. There, it, the infinity cannot really obtain in concrete reality. Actual infinites, that is actual collections of things cannot be infinite, so it seems. And so arguably the collection of past events, uh, because that constitutes, if it's, if, it's an end, if it's a beginningless past, you have one event, another event, another event, another event, we can label in with the natural numbers and so on. There are gonna be infinitely many such events. And so that's going to inherit lots of these absurd properties of infinity, such that we should conclude that the past is finite. So anyway, that's the a, a posteriori and a priori defense of the Coulomb's second premise. So I'll turn it over to you guys. So just to kind of wrestle with this infinity idea a little bit, I mean, I think you've done a, a great job of kind of showing how strange it is to wrap our heads around such an odd notion. And if we think about, as you say, God being an infinite being, it's the kind of being that it's very hard to wrap our minds around and might be difficult to comport with our reality. I, I wonder if the fact that it's the notion of God is an absurd being and infinity is an absurd being, whether that gives us progress in these kinds of arguments. Yeah. So this is definitely one objection that has been leveled in the literature towards this a priori defense of the second premise of the Kalam. Like, hey, you theists say that God is infinite, right? God has infinite knowledge, right? God knows that one plus one is two, that one plus two is three, that one plus three is four, and so on. God knows infinitely many things. He knows that for any, for any proposition P, take maybe that we are having a discussion right now. That's one proposition, but here's another proposition. It is true that we are having a discussion right now. It, and moreover, it is true that it is true that we are having a discussion right now and so on. So for any given proposition, there are going to be infinitely many ascending propositions in this kind of Tarski schema hierarchy. And there also just seem to be, yeah, infinitely many mathematical truths. Uh, and God would seem to have to know these. Doesn't that make God infinite? God is infinitely perfect and so on. So surely God also inherits all these sorts of absurdities. And in which case, wouldn't we have an argument against God's existence on our hands? That's a very interesting thought. Now, there are, there are different ways that Plon push back on this. One way is to distinguish between a kind of quantitative and a qualitative infinite. So quantitative infinite would be like a collection of discrete, distinct members that are sort of, it's just a collection. And the number of elements in that collection is infinity. It's the first cardinal infinite, a left null. And that's just a fancy name for the audience, just for basically infinity. Think of it like that. So that's a kind of quantitative infinite. You can kind of like number the elements and they're distinct, discrete little bits, as it were. But a qualitative infinite is not so much an infinite in that first sense, but it's more so just kind of being like unlimited in some sense. It's without restraint. It's without kind of boundaries. It's more so a kind of, it's not as though you have infinitely many little discrete bits of information going to build something up, going, making a collection, but rather it's just a kind of intensive magnitude, right? It's, it's sheer perfection, let's say. That's a, that's a kind of quality and it's the quality without limit, but it's not as, uh, just unlimited. He's unbounded in his perfection. It's just one quality there. And so given this relevant distinction between the quantitative and qualitative infinite, 
those absurd properties seem to attach to a quantitative infinite, don't they, right? It's when you have those infinitely many distinct discrete members that can be manipulated, subtracted, and so on, that we seem to get the quote-unquote absurdities. And it's not the case that we get the absurdities when we have something that's a qualitative infinite. Now, of course, that gets complicated because, well, those little propositions to each mathematical truth, right? Those are distinct truths. So then you'd think that that would apply to that. And of course, what defenders of the clone, or at least what its prominent defender, William Lake Craig says, is he goes anomalous truth. He says, uh, there are no mathematical objects. There are no propositions. There are no mathematical truths and so on. Uh, of course, he, he would say that, yeah, it's true that one plus one equals two, but that doesn't ontologically commit us to some proposition, which is like an abstract object or even some sort of like little bit in God's mind, which is the proposition that one plus one equals two. Instead, he goes anomalous approach. So he takes a kind of, he says, there aren't any such things as these. There aren't any numbers. There aren't any yeah, mathematical objects more generally and so on. That's a big price to pay. Uh, there are lots of really good arguments for realism. And, but anyway, such is the nature of philosophy. You have to weigh pros and cons of various positions. But yeah, that's a very good pushback. So as I understand it, the solution is really that if we were to think about the universe stretching back infinitely in time, that involves quantitative infinity. Whereas if you think about God as being infinite, that involves qualitative infinity. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? It seems like this conception of the universe might beg the question against the pantheist, right? So the pantheist thinks that the universe is godly, right? It just, it is God. So if there are certain properties to God, like qualitative infinity that you want to ascribe to God, the pantheist is going to say, I really want to ascribe those to the universe too. And so it's going to, the pantheist is going to resist this distinction that is drawn so sharply between God and the universe when it comes to these sorts of properties like quantitative and qualitative infinity. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess how the defender of the claw might respond to that is by saying, okay, granted, you pantheists say that, yeah, there actually isn't this distinction or this hard and fast distinction between God, which is thoroughly qualitatively infinite, and the universe, which has various quantitative infinites. Instead, there's kind of intermingling, as you said, between them. But I think that the defender of the Guangs would say, yeah, okay, I can grant that. But precisely because there's an intermingling between them, you still have those quantitative elements, right? So although, yes, the universe does have the qualitative, maybe the qualitative infinity features, but it does still have those quantitative infinity features. And so they might say, given these sorts of assertive implications of infinity, it's that very fact, which is problematic, just the mere fact of having those quantitative infinites. So although, yes, the universe, as you say, has various godlike features, maybe qualitative infinites, the problem is that it still has the quantitative infinites. And in particular, that kind of quantitative infinite past, such that each day is preceded by another day, you can count the days and so on. So I think that's how they would probably respond. Yeah, alternatively. Yeah, no, I think that's a good response. I think what the pantheist is going to be pushed into is a similar view to the one that you described just now, where you start to dismiss certain elements of the universe, like infinite truths about truths. So the, the pantheist is going to be pushed into a position where he's going to want a unified view of the world. So he's going to want to say that there's no real distinction between objects. The apparent quantification that you can do isn't real quantification. Everything is actually just one thing. Perhaps there's differences in properties, but not in substances and these sort of positions, which aren't that attractive to a lot of people. But the pantheist is going to start to push towards the idea that, well, maybe there's no quant quanti quantification you can do when it comes to the universe. And just like you can't do it with God, well, you actually can't do it with the universe either. That's good. I think that's definitely one way to get around this. And um, the Kalan proponent will probably just say, yeah, 
that that's one if you're pushed into that, the Columbia proponent will probably say, okay, that's the intellectual price tag of your position. The Columbia proponent will probably say that seems implausible. And if I could push you to that, that seems like at least philosophical progress. And so that's probably something that they'll say. Now, if I could give some of my responses to the uh, Hilbert's Hotel sort of thought experiment, I, I, I'd like to uh, indulge myself there. So there are lots of different responses to this and lots of different problems. I actually get quite frustrated by the Hilbert's Hotel argument because uh, I just don't think it succeeds. And so I actually don't think you would even need to be to that, that direction. But it is, of course, a very interesting one and philosophically explored by thinkers like Spinoza and others. So one thing to say here is that, well, hey, there, there actually seems to be a relevant difference between Hilbert's Hotel and an infinite past. Intuitively, the past is over and done with. It's fixed. You can't manipulate the past, right? You can't like go back and like maneuver past days and like switch them around in some sort of way. That just doesn't make any sense. What's past is fixed. It's done. There's no use crying over spilled milk. So the thought goes. But the past, you can't really manipulate it. But what's the absurd thing about Hilbert's Hotel? It's precisely that you did all these various manipulations with it. It's because you could subtract things. It's because you can manipulate them. It's because you could take away infinitely many elements and still be left with infinitely many. And then if you take away different infinitely many elements, you're left with finitely many. It's precisely the manipulations and the subtractions which is undergirding or underwriting the alleged absurdities. But that's not present in the infinite past. And so there's a kind of relative difference between the infinite past and Hilbert's Hotel, which would disallow you to, to infer from the absurdity of Hilbert's Hotel to the impossibility of infinite past. So that's one response, and that's a relatively plausible response by my lights. Another response is that this argument is equally going to pose a challenge for an endless future. So Intuitively, it seems like the future could be endless. It seems like days could just go on and on and on and on and on. And moreover, a traditional religious views, such as ones in Christianity and Islam and so on, promise an endless afterlife. And so if the Hilbert's Hotel argument were to succeed, and if, as I claim, it would rule out an endless future just as much as a beginning of the past, well, there would actually be a new argument against Christianity and against Islam and against all these other sorts of views that defenders of the Kalam are typically trying to wield their arguments on behalf of. So why think that a Hilbert's Hotel equally rules out an endless future? Well, because an endless future is going to inherit these properties of infinity, right? You, that you can pair in one-to-one -one correspondence the whole set with proper parts of it. So let me, let me just illustrate this. So suppose we have two ain't Gabriel and... Michelangelo. Okay. So we got Gabriel and Michelangelo today, starting today, they're going to sing various praises to God throughout an endless future. So on each day, they're going to be singing a praise and let's suppose that they alternate. So Gabriel sings one today, Michelangelo sings one tomorrow, Gabriel the next day, Michelangelo the next day, and so on. Now suppose that, okay, so we're just imagining one world in which this happens. How many, how many praises are such that they will be sung over the span of an endless future? Obviously, infinitely many, right? If it were finitely many, well, then they would eventually come to an end after they sang that many, right? But we're supposing X hypothesize that it's endless. And so the number is infinite. Now suppose that uh, in, a different, in a different reality, the angels are planning on the first day and they're like, uh, uh, you know what, uh, Gabriel, you just relax. You, you, maybe you just sit on the beach. Don't do any, don't do any praises or whatsoever. I'll do the praises. Okay. This is, this is a Michelangelo, whatever, whoever said it was. So Michelangelo is just doing the praises and Michelangelo is doing the praise. I think let's just say today. And then they're skipping a day that would have been Gabriel's then the next day. And then they skip a day and then the next day. And then they skip a day and so on. Now we can still ask how many praises are such that they will be sung. Again, the answer is infinitely many. 
because if it were only finitely many, then again, this angel will be coming to an end at some point in the future, but we suppose that it's endless. So the number of future praises is going to be infinite. But hold on a second. We just subtracted from that first situation infinitely many praises, right? We took out all the ones that Gabriel was singing. And so infinity minus infinity is infinity. Oh, absurd. Uh, so you get all the same sorts of absurd implications. And again, we could do this with uh, infinity minus infinity is four. Again, just suppose that they each alternate. One does today, the other one does tomorrow, then the other one, then the other one, just four. And then they don't do any praises after that. So now, again, we've taken away infinitely many praises after that fourth day or whatever. And we're left with four. So infinity minus infinity is infinity. Infinity minus infinity is four. Absurd. It's like yada, yada, yada. So anyway, my point here is just that the endless future inherits all of these allegedly absurd properties of infinity. And so if you're going to infer that these sorts of properties are impossible on the basis of Hilbert's hotel, you should also infer that an endless future is impossible and with it, the falsity of Christianity and so on. So anyway, those are two plausible responses and there are other responses. So for instance, I don't even share the intuition that these sorts of things are absurd. I think that's precisely what we should expect. Maybe that's because I was enculturated and indoctrinated into Cantorian set theory, but I don't even find these implausible. So these sorts of um, maneuvers, these sorts of manipulations, properties of one-to-one -one correspondence, I don't even find them involved. The argument is powerless for me and anyone else who shares my, against my plausibility structures. But anyway, those are three sorts of responses that I would give and I'll turn it over to you guys. So I want to touch briefly on uh, our Panthen discussion again. So I think the problem that Jason has is twofold. So the first of all is it, one is it's a banal claim. You say the universe and God are identical with each other. We go, okay, well then what work is God doing in this? If we ordinarily think of God as being some kind of supernatural being with mystical abilities, like if it's just the ordinary stuff that we see in the universe, why not just say the universe is the universe? Why do we need to add the magic dust of God? And then the other one is to say, well, if he wants to add in the magic dust, which is to say, well, God is the universe has all these magical properties, uh, which we ordinarily think God has. I go, well, can we see them? It doesn't seem like we, as you, as you point out, that's quite a metaphysical bullet to bite. And uh, so I wonder if you're going to help me in uh, giving, giving my co-host the skewer too. <laughs> so one, one thing someone might say at this juncture is as a general rule of thumb, it seems as though we should, we should take things at least as they appear, unless human reason to think otherwise. If we don't take that principle, then arguably we're going to be left in a kind of radical skepticism. If we can't trust think the way that things appear, well, then I can't trust that there's a computer in front of me. I can't trust that I'm having a conversation with you guys right now. Uh, I, I would need some sort of positive argument for that. And as we know from the philosophical literature over the really millennia, it's extremely hard to get a good philosophical argument that let's say proves that there is an external world and that I'm reliably rat latching onto it. That's extremely difficult. So it seems to be a plausible rule of thumb, at least. So as to avoid skepticism, because arguably I think it's a, what we might call a Morian fact that there is an external world. I, I, I think we should be able to capture that with our cosmology. And I think one principle that allows us to capture our knowledge of that is just this principle that we should treat things how they appear, unless given sufficient reason to think otherwise. So given this principle, given that we have this principle, it seems as though that would allow us to have at least a kind of presumption against this kind of pantheistic view that uh, he's been sketching. Because there do seem to be distinct objects around us. There do seem to be these sorts of quantitative elements. There seem to be, like, I seem to be a different, we could say substance or thing or whatever. I seem to be a different thing than you. It just seems to be the case. It appears to be the case that this kind of monism is, is false. And so that's not proof that it's false, but it gives us some weight of a reason that to think that it's false. And we would need some kind of positive reason from the monist to counteract that. 
Otherwise, we're justified in rejecting motive. So that's one way that I would kind of push back. Another way, I guess a second way, and these will be my two total ways before I turn it over to you guys. Another way would just be like, what's the explanatory payoff of adding this magical dust? Uh, <laughs> it seems to be simpler just to say that there's the universe. And what, what explanatory benefit are we getting by adding this metaphysical profligacy, we might say? What are we getting from this? What's the explanatory payoff? It seems as though just the universe will be able to do it without adding the kind of magical dust, as it were. Not to be derogatory, but I'm, I'm using one of the hosts. <laughs> I'm using one of their terms. Yeah, no, I've been facing these magical dust objections for many years. <laughs> so I do think there are solutions. So let's, let's look at your two objections. So the first one has to do with this principle that you should prima facie accept what's in front of you and not add stuff unnecessarily. So it's a simplicity argument that it's simpler just to accept what's in front of you. So a, a lot of the arguments for pantheism rely on exactly this principle. So they say, well, a lot of people experience the world around them as having some sort of spiritual element, as having some sort of divine element. And well, you should accept this, this experience that they have. Now, when I provide that argument to you, you're going to say, hold on a moment. I don't want to accept that principle in this case. In this case, that's not a principle I want to, to accept. We must look at alternative explanations for why people are having these divine experiences. They're psychotic or they're misguided or there's alternative explanations which are far more complex, far more sophisticated and which these people who are having these experiences can't even understand. But those are the true explanations. So. I think an argument like that doesn't go very far because the very person espousing the argument won't use it in the kind of situations where the person who experiences the universe or the world around them as divine espouses that. Those, the person giving this argument won't accept those kind of experiences. So I, I, I'm not, I don't buy that kind of argument. The second argument I think is stronger, but also unsuccessful. So the second argument says, well, what's the point in adding pixie dust, right? What's the point in renaming things. Why should we say, well, this physical universe isn't just the physical universe, it's God as well. Why say that? So what is the value in saying that there's two objects that are numerically identical and naming both of them? Why not just name one? Well, a good, a good answer is that we do this all the time when it comes to social phenomena and artifacts. So for example, I look at this piece of marble and I say, well, that's the David. That's not just a piece of marble. I don't just cite the material constituents of that piece of marble. I say, well, that piece of marble is identical with the David or with a, with a, with, with a particular statue. And because I named that statue, now there's all sorts of things I can do with that information. I can talk about its aesthetic properties. I can discuss the value of it and what it means and its symbolism in a way that just wouldn't make much sense if I was just discussing the properties of a piece of clay or a piece of marble. We do this as well when it comes to social groups and social phenomena. So we say, well, there's this collection of individual things that when we describe them individually don't seem to do much, but as soon as we describe them as Republicans or Democrats or a border between countries, a row of stones that suddenly constitutes a border or a piece of paper, a whole lot of individual piece of pieces of paper that constitute money. Then we say, oh, okay, all right. These individual things are identical with these collective things. And yet we've got information that we didn't have before when we only describe the individual things. 
yeah, those are interesting responses. So I will take them in turn. So the first one was that, well, hey, appearances here diverge. Some people, the world does appear in some sense divine to them where they have various, what we might say, experiences of the divine or what we might say, religious experiences or something along those lines. So in some sense, experiences diverge and that, that's one thing. But another thing is like what I said there, just would it be powerful for people who don't have my appearance there, right? I mean, I was just saying earlier on in the conversation that I don't have the appearances of the absurdity of, of Hilbert's Hotel and so on. That seems to me precisely what we should expect from uh, infinity and so on. And it just doesn't strike me as absurd in any sense. And I was just saying that any, any, one, any person who shares my plausibility structures there isn't given any reason by Hilbert's Hotel. And so you might say, uh, if you don't share those appearances, then you're not given any reason in that case. So I want to affirm that that second, that second thing. I do think that if it just doesn't even strike you as the case, like if I, the intuitions that I was describing earlier, those appearances and intuitions, if those weren't striking you, then I agree, you, you don't have any reason here. This goes to the kind of person-based need for justification. We all have different plausibility structures. We all have different evidence bases. We all have different books that we've read, articles that we've read, podcasts that we've listened to and so on. And that goes into shape the kind of position that we occupy on this grand epistemic landscape. So whether or not we're justified in accepting an argument, that's going to be a function of this huge concoction of factors. And that's going to be individual specific. One thing we might say in response to that first point, though, is that, hey, I mean, these sorts of religious or divine experiences seem to have defeaters that aren't present in the case of the more ordinary experiences of me being distinct from you or the false thief monism. So those defeaters, someone might point to the, the, the hugely divergent character of these religious experiences, right? There is massive disagreement among these sorts of experiences. Maybe you'll attribute that to just theoretical differences or people interpreting some core kind of experience differently. But at least prima facie, it seems to be the case that these sorts of deliverances aren't really tracking any sort of, or at least the best explanation for this divergence, you might argue, is that they aren't really tracking any reality out there. They're more so just conditioned by culture and other sorts of things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you might kind of level an argument for disagreement there as a defeater for the appearance claims that they mentioned. So that's the first, but that what I'll say on the first point you made. The second point was about social phenomena and artifacts and the fact that um, we very often give these kind of dual accounts of artifacts and social phenomena such that on, on, on the one hand, you might have this kind of scientific, I guess we might say colorless description. And on the other hand, we have this kind of maybe more aesthetic, maybe artistic, maybe more colorful description. The kind of pixie dust, as it were, and both of those are fruitful and good descriptions, accurate descriptions of one the one phenomenon out there. So I think that's a, that's a an interesting point. One thing we might say is that in the case of statues and so on, like we can see the fruitfulness of applying that kind of that what we might call the, the the pixie dust. There, we can see the fruitfulness of treating it as a work of art. We can see the fruitfulness of treating it as having various aesthetic properties and so on. There is a kind of explanatory payoff there. It explains why the artist did such and such. It explains uh, various ways that we treat the, the statue and so on. But what one might say like, yes, but where is that in the case of the universe, right? Where is this explanatory payoff that we're getting by infusing the universe with this divine juice, as it were? <laughs> uh, where is that explanatory payoff? So they can, they can agree that, yes, we oftentimes do this with artifacts and social phenomena. But it's precisely because there's a kind of explanatory payoff there that we're willing to bring on this extra baggage of commitments to aesthetic properties and so on. It has that explanatory payoff. Where is the explanatory payoff in the case of the universe? That's what they might say. So, yeah. I think it's a good response. And I do think the pantheist owes a, an explanation or an account of what godliness is as something more than just identical with the universe. Because 
if that's all the content there is to the word divine or godly, well, then you're just in the circle, right? And, and if you ask the pantheist, so what's so great about the universe being divine as opposed to not divine? Is there, let's say there was one world where the universe is identical with God and another world where the universe isn't identical with God and there's no God. So you've got these two different universes. Why is the one preferable to the other? And is there any distinction at all? The, the pantheist has to give an explanation for why the one is more important than the other. So he has to give an account of what divinity is that isn't just mentioning the universe. I agree with that, and I haven't given that, and I think that's really hard to do for the pantheist. And you might even say that it's sort of impossible to do, given the identity claims involved. I don't think it's impossible. I think there are ways of going about it. I'm not going to go into them <laughs> now. But what I will say is there must be a difference because pantheists use pantheism to guide their behavior. So they behave differently from the way atheists behave when they think about the universe. They think differently about the process of death, for example. And so even if I can't just give the account, or even if the account is contestable about what divinity is, it at least seems to change people's behavior when they believe it. And so you might provide a very similar account to, even if I can't define exactly what an artifact is or what art is, or even if I can't define exactly what social phenomena are, it's still the case that those social phenomena seem to have a causal impact on people, as do artifacts. When people look at a lump of clay, they don't say, oh, wow, it's a lump of clay. But when they look at a, a statue, they say, oh, wow, look at the curves on that statue. So just as it's easy to see the payoff when it comes to artifacts, it's also to see the behavioral payoff when it comes to, to pantheism. But I agree, if we were to dig deeper, it's very hard to define what a divinity is. And I've used particular examples, which Mark is probably grinning at internally, because I actually don't believe in the existence of artifacts or social phenomena. <laughs> I knew that. Yeah. I was thinking when you were describing the social yeah. phenomena groups, I was like, dude, yeah, I know yeah. you wrote your dissertation denying the existence of groups, yeah. but okay. Yes. Agreed. But but they're very nice examples because most people do believe in the existence of artifacts and it does guide their behavior. So it does seem like at least the belief in these things has a causal impact. So the belief seems to have some sort of, I mean, maybe that's what pantheism is. It's just a certain belief which guides behavior, but then that has content. I do think it's more than that, but at the very least it's that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's definitely, I mean, I think that's a plausible response. And again, we're just going to have to compare the relative plausibility of the following two explanations. Number one, the explanation for this difference in your life is solely in terms of your mental states and your beliefs and so on, without them accurately tracking a sense of reality. And on the other hand, it, the explanation for your behavior is both in terms of the beliefs of various mental states, as well as those tracking some sort of phenomenon of reality. And the opponent of pantheism, I imagine, would try to say that that latter thing is what's happening in the case of the statue and so on. It's because you're latching on to various aesthetic properties of the statue itself, the various features of the statue itself, that, that it's precisely because of that, that there are differences in your behavior and so on. Whereas they might try to say, that's not the case with pantheism. Pantheism falls in the former category. But anyway, as you, as you note, that's a, that's a debate itself. Yeah. So to put in a kind of few concluding daggers, I, I think there's a couple of slides ahead in the chasing pools. So the one is on this work of the divine and you, you accurately point out people experience the divine in a whole range of different ways, miracles, whatnot. I think one of the ways that you're going to hear reported incredibly rarely is that they experience themselves as one being. In other words, the idea that when I look through my life, it is as if I'm looking through 
the whole of nature, the whole of reality that I feel like I'm totally connected. You hear people talk about feeling like they're part of something bigger. People talk about this through psychedelic experiences, but the idea that we're all just one flow of consciousness, I don't think that's a divine experience that you hear spoken about very often. So the fact that people refer to particular divine experiences doesn't get you to the one that Jason wants. And it's the spooky one, right? It seems like a very strong metaphysical claim to say, as you say, we're all just part of this one system, even though our subjective experience of reality is individual. It isn't this collective. So you sort of got to do some explanatory work there. I, I like these kind of moves around the artifacts, and I think there's probably something true to be said to further understand the object by calling it a work of art. Um, and of course, it's very amusing that Jason doesn't think that art exists. <laughs> but as you say, what is it about God that's adding extra, extra explanatory power? It seems to my mind it's undermining it. So it's not like it explains how the universe works in any kind of way. It's not like it's using God in the traditional senses of having these supernatural powers if he just means coextensive with the laws of nature. So it's only once you start to add in the, the weird stuff that it does some extra explanatory work, but then it becomes harder to defend. So yeah, those are, those are my concerns. Uh, there is a different kind of view, which is called panantheism, which is not the idea that God and the universe are coextensive. It's that the universe is housed inside of God so that if the universe ceased to exist, God would continue to exist. And I, I wonder if you think that there's something preferable about a view like that. Yeah. So the, the sort of two things there, the one, the first one was, I really resonated with that one, that in some sense, even suppose, like we could even suppose that you get some explanatory payoffs by this kind of pantheistic view. We also have to consider the various explanatory deficits that you might incur from it. So not only like your explanation, you might be able to explain something, but if your explanation raises more questions than it answers and it only increases mystery in various ways, that's a, that's a bad making feature of explanations and all of us being able, we prefer one that doesn't raise those kinds of further questions and so on. So that is definitely something that might, that might come up here. Even if we, that, that God in this case is, is pulling some explanatory or do, you know, pulling, pulling some explanatory weight as it were, you know, contributing to our explanation of certain phenomena, does it raise more questions than it answers? Does it only increase mystery? You're, you're, you're faced with the problem of how does God act in the world? Is, is you're faced with these various problems about properties of God. You're faced with various questions about his intentions. Like, is he intending absolutely everything? Does he even have intention? Like you're raising all these sorts of questions that are going to be difficult to answer and that might only increase the mystery concomitant with your proffered explanation. So yes, it might actually become harder to, as you point out. The second thing was, yeah, panentheism. So panentheism is very difficult to define. Uh, one of my friends and co-authors, Ryan, Dr. Ryan Mullins, he, he has this paper called the difficulty of demarcating panentheism. And he just goes through it. It's like, it's so difficult to define panentheism. Like what exactly is this claim? Because it's, it's hard to distinguish it from like pantheism on the one hand and these more kind of traditional views of God where God is not even overlapping with the universe in any sense. Um, I guess one of the most fruitful ways that I've come across is like, okay, the universe is in some sense in God, intrinsic to God, but God is something over and above the universe. So God is not identical to it, but the universe is in some sense in God. So, I mean, you could kind of almost go an idealist route with that. You could sometimes, it just depends, but I actually think that that's potentially more fruitful than, than, than pantheism, because you could say that, um, at least with respect to the Kalam, for instance, you could, you could even grant the Kalam and say like, yeah, God actually does create stuff. It's just that 
when he creates, he creates out of the resources of his own being. He doesn't create like ex nihilo. He creates out of the resources of his own being. Maybe he even thinks up the universe. And so the universe is in some sense in God. And God is more than it because God is the cause. God is prior to it. But the, the, universe, is, the universe is on this mental arena in which God, God thinks and so on. And it might even take on a life of its own as sometimes our dreams do. So yeah, I think panentheism is, is a super interesting avenue and there needs to be more research on it because it's really interesting. And I think it has potentially benefits over traditional theism, but it also has benefits potentially over pantheism as well. So, um, so yeah. Well, I've, I've got a few daggers in me. I, I'm not going to spend too much time taking them out because there are more interesting things to talk about as well. You, you haven't gone to the third premise of the Kalam argument. So I think that's worth discussing, but I just, I do want to say that Mark's view that, and, and you pointed this out as well, that experiences of God are very diverse. I mean, that is true, but Mark said, this is a very rare experience. I don't think it's a very rare experience at all. It's a, he mentioned people on, on psychedelics. It's a stock standard experience on, on psychedelics of people who are theistic or atheistic. It's a sense of, of connectedness to others. And it's also a new age experience that many people experience, um, through meditation, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a very unusual experience, but I take your point that there certainly is a diversity of different experiences of God. I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't want to democratize experiences of God and say, well, whichever one is the most common, well, that's the real one. And I wouldn't want to say that one that's very seldomly experienced can't be correct. I would just want to say that the, the point of raising the experiences in the first place is just that it's not the case that just because certain things appear a certain way that they must be that way. And it's not the case that if things don't appear a certain way, they can't be that way. I'm also very skeptical about the simplicity arguments in general. So to me, the universe is a complicated place. Life is complicated and there's a lot of cases across philosophy and science where the more complicated explanation wins, not because it's more complicated, but because of other reasons. It just so happens that at the end of time, when we look back, that certain more complicated explanations won over simpler explanations. I also think that it's misleading to think that science is simple. I, I, I think science is really tough. You, it, it's, and there's a lot of questions that it raises. We don't know how to unify gravitational theory and other theories, other theories like string theory. We don't know how to unify them. Those are big questions that people think a lot about, and they don't seem like any smaller or any bigger questions than these sort of questions that I'm raising. So, I mean, I mean, they seem like a lot more sophisticated questions. I don't mean to, to overhype the importance of my questions, but my point is just that in a lot of areas, which we accept as legitimate areas, they raise perhaps more questions than they answer. So I, 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 I don't want to dismiss pantheism based on sort of these soft reasons. I don't want to dismiss it based on reasons which are, well, if we consider the simplicity principle, it counts against pantheism a little bit. And I'd say, all right, but I don't accept the soft principle or it's not deductive reasoning. It's just, it's, it's best explanation reasoning. The best explanation is that we have a simpler explanation. Well, okay, fine. That's, that's, that, that provides a little bit of support against pantheism, but I'm, I'm prepared to accept that there's a tiny plausibility dent. I want, I want deductive objections. So I, I think given that this wasn't supposed to be a, <laughs> a discussion of pantheism, what I'm curious about now is the third, the third premise of the Kalam argument and whether you think the Kalam argument as a whole is successful. Yeah. So just a very brief, very brief on what you said first, but yeah, I mean, you're going to the kind of foundations of theory comparison, which is very, very difficult. And uh, there's lots of philosophical work there. There's lots of philosophical disagreement. 
what are the various theoretical virtues? How do they interplay with one another? How do we weigh them? How do we weigh simplicity and explanatory power? Should we be Bayesians about all this? Should we just be multiplying the likelihood ratio by the prior ratio? And that's all that we really should be focusing on. Or should we take a more kind of global theoretical comparison and bring in all these different uh, theoretical virtues like unification, explanatory breadth, explanatory depth, categorical simplicity, qualitative simplicity, uh, like quantitative simplicity. Like it's very difficult. I just want to get to the audience to compare these sorts of theories. And that might be one way that the pan pantheists can push back. It's like, well, you're using these various methodological principles, but you could target those. Um, and you did say kind of bring in a kind of deductive argument. What's difficult about those is that oftentimes, um, so long as your theory is consistent, right? There's always just going to be a premise. If, if I have three premises or any number of premises and a conclusion, which concludes to the falsity of, of pantheism, so long as it's deductive, it simply follows that the pantheist is going to be rejecting one or more of those premises, assuming that the pantheist has a consistent theory. And so the deductive argument is just going to be useless. I mean, I might as well just assert the falsity of pantheism. Deductive arguments, I mean, you're always just going to be able to reject one of the premises so long as, firstly, you have a consistent view, and secondly, the argument is logically valid. And so this is a point that Graham Mopping makes really nicely in one of his religious studies articles. Um, it's entitled, What Derivations Cannot Do. So there's a very big limitation of deductive arguments, which is why a number of philosophers are pushing towards kind of theory comparison, Bayesian approaches and so on. So although you might want the deductive argument, it might be, it might be difficult, but anyway, let's set that aside. The, the, the column, again, like you said, uh, the, the third premise or what we might say is, well, it depends on how you're numbering it. But of course we have the first premise, whatever begins to exist as cause. The second premise, the universe began to exist. What follows from those is that the universe is a cause. And then because of the third premise is if the universe is a cause, well, then that's God, right? Is that identification stage. So why should we think that this is God? Well, defenders oftentimes, well, if it's caused the universe, well, then arguably it's the cause of all of space and time. So it cannot itself be like in any space and time because it's bringing them about in the first place, right? So it's in some sense prior to them, maybe not necessarily temporally prior, but ontologically or metaphysically prior, explanatorily prior. So it's spaceless, it's timeless. It would seem to have to be pretty powerful to bring into being an entire universe, which is quite wonderful if you look around. I mean, it's also pretty sucky in lots of different ways, um, but <laughs> set that aside. So yeah, it's pretty powerful. It's spaceless, it's timeless. It's, it has causal power and you might bring in something like, well, if it's timeless and it kind of necessitated its effects, then it would seem as though it effects would have to be timeless as well. That's what they might argue. Like if it's timeless and this thing kind of just automatically kind of emanates out or necessitates its effect, well, it would seem as though its effect would likewise be timeless. And so what that tells us is that there, there can't be a kind of necessitating link because the effect is temporal, right? And the cause we've already deduced is timeless. So it can't be a necessitating link. It can't be a kind of emanationist necessitating type kind of causation. Well, then they might think the only kind of causation left is a kind of non-necessitating free choice, it seems. And in that case, we have a free choice of a personal agent because only personal agents can freely choose things. So we have a free choice from a personal agent. Seems as though it would have to have some kind of pretty good foreplanning in order to bring about this wonderful universe, pretty good cognitive powers, very powerful, timeless, spaceless, etc. Uh, so. That seems suspiciously like God, doesn't it? So that, that's the idea. How would I push back against that? Well, there are lots of different ways. I mean, one way that we could pretty quickly block off that inference to God, because those personal attributes are pretty important there. You could just say, no, there are impersonal forms of non-necessitating causation. Quantum mechanics arguably provide us with precisely such cases. You could have all the exact same initial causal conditions. And yet, let's say the particle could go through the left slit or the right slit. It's indeterministic. That is, there isn't a necessitating link there between the causal conditions and the effect. So you could easily have impersonal, but non-necessitating 
causation. So that's one way to block the inference to um, it being a person or it having free choice. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just this kind of non-spatio-temporal universal wave function or something like that. It could be a perfectly naturalistically or atheistically acceptable being, really. And that's even granting the, the first two premises. So anyway, I'm not convinced by that third premise. And uh, as for the first two premises, I find the first premise plausible. Uh, I think the arguments in favor of it actually aren't all that good, but I still lean towards thinking first premise is true. And as for the second premise, I think that the arguments for and against it, I don't really think that there's a successful argument for or against it. So I'm kind of agnostic about the second premise. So on the whole, overall, I don't really think it's a successful argument. Well, Joe, I want to say this has been an absolute delight. We've taken one of the major arguments with the existence of God, and I think we've managed to plumb the depths of it in such great detail. And you've got uh, just an incredible command of the arguments for and against this. And also, I just have to say, I love your presentation style, which is not to go, these people are complete and utter morons for believing this. What kind of a, a dupe would buy this? You, you really give good arguments for both sides. And I think if you didn't say that you're an agnostic, I don't think anyone would know one way or the other what your internal belief was. <laughs> yes, that's that's one of my philosophies for teaching. So firstly, thank you for, for saying that. And yeah, I love to give sorts of presentations and to leave things to the audience to think for themselves. I want to empower people to think critically with the tools and the lights of reason and experience, so on, to make up their own minds for it. I want to empower people to have both the intellectual virtues to, I guess, cultivate the intellectual virtues and to use them in these sorts of debates to, to probe things and to find out for themselves various treasures of truth. So, um, yeah, I'm very against this sort of, you're irrational, like you're utterly irrational if you disagree with me and things like that. But, but anyway, yes, thank you for, for that. And yeah, like I said, I really I enjoy your guys' channel as well. So, Awesome. I'm going to stop our recording, but if you're happy to stick around for a little bit. Yeah.